Well, we've been singing some amazing words, uh, words that Job said, uh, words that are easy to sing and hard to live, that whatever our circumstances, whether we are going through good times or bad, that we'll bless your name. We pray that we'd understand why we can do that as we think again, looking at your word together. Uh, So please persuade us of these truths we've been singing in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit down. Well, we come to uh, the last in our series, looking through the book of Job. Uh, I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles to page 542. If you have your own Bible, then if you find the book of Psalms, uh, Job uh, comes just before the book of Psalms. And uh, if you like these things, you might also like to take up uh, uh, this insert uh, that is tucked inside the service order, as I've got an outline um, of uh, this sermon on there, so you can see where we're going. Job chapter 42, verses 7 to 17. We've been thinking over these weeks, as we've been looking at Job, of the uh, great problem of unjust suffering. And uh, whenever we hear of indiscriminate or innocent suffering, it is sure to raise questions in our minds, whether it's close at hand or far away. Uh, A number of us here over these last weeks have been struck by the news that, that hasn't made the news, the news that in Orissa, in India, hundreds of churches have been destroyed and several thousand Christian families have had their homes burnt or destroyed. Now here then are Christians who, as far as we can tell, are being faithful, and we're bound to ask the question, why? I mean, I'm sure they're asking that question, but as we look on, don't you ask that question, why them, Lord? Why didn't you protect them, Lord? Now that seems to be the big issue of the book of Job. As we look at Job himself, we look at a man crushed by irrational evil, ruined by indiscriminate suffering, and we ask why? It's everywhere in our world, we don't actually have to travel to India to find it, it's here in Fullwood, in individual lives, people suffering from terminal illness, or trapped in an unhappy marriage, or losing everything through the global economic crisis, or seeing their children live a life of self-destruction, or experiencing the death of a loved one, we could go on. I know people in this church in every category that I've just mentioned. And so often those people cry out, why? And some have asked, what have I done to deserve this? And you see, that's the question. That, that's the question that really shows us how we're thinking. What have I done to deserve this? That's the question at the heart of the issue of Job's suffering, at least as far as his friends are concerned, his so-called friends. See, over the past weeks we've heard those friends, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. We've heard their wisdom. And in a nutshell, they say people get what they deserve. They said, Job, you must have done something wrong to be suffering like this. And looking at the extent of your suffering, you must have done something really bad. The Lord must be punishing you, Job. Now, of course, as we've read through the book, we know they're wrong because back in chapter 1, we were given a glimpse into heaven. In chapter 1, we were, we were given that opportunity to listen into the conversation about Job between none other than the Lord and Satan. And so as the book unfolds, we know that Job is not being punished because of anything he's done. The mystery of suffering is just not that easy. There's no easy answers. 
So we're still left with questions. Uh, But in these last verses, a lot of those questions are answered. Not all of them, but certainly one or two of the really big ones. Because here we see that the Lord has a plan for his world, a a plan that includes suffering. Here we see that suffering, even suffering, is not wasted and useless. Indeed, we see here that innocent suffering is at the very heart of God's master plan. Isn't that remarkable? Now, before that, the Lord speaks to Job's uh, friends about, first point on the handout, the danger of pop theology. The danger of pop theology. See, Job's friends were wrong. They were wrong about Job and they were wrong about the Lord. And look how the Lord responds to them. Verse 7 of chapter 42. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now look, this, uh, this tells us that it's a very serious business when we make proclamations about God and suffering. It's a serious business at a couple of levels. It's a serious business because wrong theology has a devastating effect on people's lives. Now, we've seen that with Job. But worse still, wrong theology maligns the character of God, the good name of God. If we go around pointing the finger and saying, you're suffering because you did dot, 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 you're suffering because God is punishing you, when we know there are situations when that's not the case... We are maligning the good word of God. That's what Job's friends were saying. You're suffering because you've done something wrong. We know he wasn't. And Job's friends said, Job, uh, God is punishing you, but we know he wasn't. Now, will you please see the danger of pop theology? It makes God angry with you. Verse 7. I am angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken of me what is right. It's such a serious business, but pop theology is everywhere. The amateur theologians down the pub discussing why the world is in such a state over a pint. Listen in and you'll hear them postulating, well, I think God is... Maybe you've done it. Oh, sure, sure to have done it. We do it in more serious situations when we Christians get alongside our friends who are suffering and, and they ask us why. How do we answer? When I go visiting people who are going through tough times and we discuss the issues they're grappling with, they'll say to me, oh, so-and-so from the church said that. And so often what I hear next is advice or counsel or guidance or teaching that is awful, frankly. People are told, you've not been healed because you don't have enough faith. Or they're assured that their unbelieving relative who's just died is, quote, in a better place now or free from suffering now. I know why people say that, but that is terrible to give that sort of advice. It sounds kind, it's very damaging. When we say that people go to heaven without Christ, unbelievers will never repent and believe and so they too will go and face the Lord without Christ. We do need to watch what we're saying in the midst of suffering. We need to repent of this pop theology that sounds good but is not faithful. And that's what the Lord said to Job's friends. 
See verse 8, he's angry with them. So verse 8, now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I'll accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. They were told then to sacrifice, to repent, to deal with their wrong advice, to never do it again. And I guess as we approach the communion table this evening, some of us will need to ask the Lord's forgiveness. We'll need to repent of the times we've given wrong advice in the name of the Lord to our friends when we've tried to be helpful, but really we haven't been. And then, well, it doesn't stop there. We'll then need to be determined to be thinking biblically on this issue of suffering so that next time it comes up, we'll know how to answer it. Because it will come up, you see, again and again. Uh, people often say to me, oh, I could never do your job. They, they often say it to me when they know that I've been in a difficult situation or they imagine the sort of tragic situations that I might find myself in. <laughs> I could never do your job, they say. But Christian, you don't have to be a vicar to find yourself in those sort of situations. You don't have to be doing my job to have to deal with the issue of suffering. You know that, don't you? I'll never forget one morning when I worked in the newspaper industry. I'd just arrived in the office, barely taking my coat off, when a girl from the advertising department knocked on my door. She came in, her face looked ashen, all the colour had drained out of her face. Can I talk to you, please, she said. She sat down opposite me on the other side of the desk and she said, you're religious, aren't you? A friend of mine was knocked off his push bike by a juggernaut yesterday riding home from work and he was killed instantly. And then she looked at me straight in the eye and she said, why did that happen? Where is he now? I was 25 years old. I'd been a Christian for less than five years. I had no formal theological training I simply made it known that I was a Christian at work because I wanted my colleagues to find out about the Lord Jesus. And now I was face to face with a bereaved young woman who was grappling with the issue of suffering. You don't have to be ordained to have to deal with these issues. Just being a Christian brings them to you, don't they? And so we must get to grips with them. And we must avoid the sin of Job's friends, trotting out Well, they weren't trite platitudes, they were quite involved, but, you know, it was wrong theology. And so, in a moment, as we close this book of Job this evening, let me encourage you not to stop thinking about the issues we've been thinking through in these last weeks. Rehearse the arguments of this book. Read good books on suffering. Get a hold of the copy of Jason Clarke's talk on suffering that we had uh, earlier in the term. This is such a serious business. We need to repent of where we've spoken words that don't truly represent God and we need to make sure that we get it right next time because there will be a next time. The danger of pop theology. Second, the the supreme example of unjust suffering in verses 7 and 8. You see, in verses uh, 7 and 8, I think it's actually verses 8 and 9 I should have put down, but in verses uh, 8 and 9, Job's friends were, were commanded to repent. But these verses, verses 8 and 9, are doing far more than that. In these verses we are given an insight into innocent suffering. Indeed, what we learn here is quite spectacular. 
I, I think this might be new for, for some people who've been around Christian things for a long time. These verses help us to see that without suffering, indeed without innocent suffering, we could not fully know the character of God. Without innocent suffering, we could not fully experience the glory of God. You see, as we look at verses 8 and 9, no doubt Job's friends would have been humbled as the Lord commanded them to bring their sacrifices to Job. They may even have been confused. What do we say wrong? Doesn't God punish wicked things? Isn't that what's going on? Well, humbled or confused or whatever they were, they they did what the Lord commanded in verse 8 and they took seven bulls and seven rams to Job to be sacrificed. And they'd have watched as the knife was plunged into the first throat of that first bull. Its throat slashed and blood splattering onto the altar. And then they'd have seen the bull chopped up into pieces and its mangled bloody remains being heaped on top of a fire before being burned up for the burnt offering. And then they'd have watched it all over again with the second bull, throat cut, blood splurting everywhere, body chopped up, and then the third and the fourth. And while it was happening, they'd have seen gallons of blood all over the floor and heard the bellows of some very distressed animals. And they would have, uh, th- th- that would have been repeated until the final ram was sacrificed in the same way. And what would they have thought? Poor animals. What did they do to deserve that? And there was their answer. There was the answer to the issue of innocent suffering. Those bulls and rams had done nothing to deserve their fate. They're, they suffered innocently. And at that moment, although Job's friends may not have understood what the right answer was, they'd have realised that their argument was wrong. Innocent suffering is at the very heart of God's word. Those animals suffered not because they'd done anything wrong, not not because they were guilty, but they suffered to bear the punishment that others deserved. They suffered to bear the punishment that Job's friends deserved. Do you see, in the sacrifice of the animals, we see that there is such a thing as innocent suffering. And more than that, the Lord commanded it here so that guilty people will escape the fate that they deserved and be blessed. And so in that act, the ultimate answer to suffering is dealt with. See, here is the picture, here is the promise, now hear the fulfilment of an innocent lamb, a lamb without blemish, being sacrificed, having its blood spilt to take the punishment of the sins of mankind. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1 verse 29. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now move your attention from the animals to Job himself. For four times in verses 7 and 8, the Lord addresses Job as my servant. Job is a picture of the Lord's righteous, suffering servant. Oh, just as the animals were just a picture, so Job now is just a picture. And Job is told to pray. He is the innocent, suffering servant who mediates between the friends and the Lord. 
He's not the mediator, but he is a picture of the mediator, the mediator that Job himself trusted in. See, Job knew all about the mediator. Do you remember back in chapter 16? There's no need to turn to it. You can turn to it if you like. Job chapter 16 and verse 19, page 522. As we read these verses again, you'll see Job knew all about a mediator between guilty people and the Lord God. Job chapter 16, verse 19. Even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friends. Do you see how wonderful that is? A man, a mediator pleading with God on our behalf. Oh, it takes a blood sacrifice not to deal with us as we deserve but when the sacrifice has been made, then the mediator prays for us and the Lord accepts the guilty. Here we see the picture, the promise, now hear the fulfilment. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. See, at the cross, we see that the Lord knows all about innocent suffering. Uh, Through Jesus' innocent torment, the Lord will bring to the world the greatest blessing imaginable. Indeed, will you grab hold of this? Without the innocent suffering of Jesus, we could not fully know the character of God. Grab hold of this. Without the innocent suffering of Jesus, we could not fully experience the glory of God. Now, that is not to say that we will understand exactly why this tragedy happens or that illness comes upon somebody, but the cross does tell us something very powerful. At the cross, we see that God cares about suffering. At the cross we see that God is ultimately involved in suffering. You know a God who knows what it is to suffer. At the cross we see that through suffering God seeks to remove suffering. And at the cross we see that the Lord will bless this fallen world in a way that we could never be blessed otherwise and indeed that we will never be blessed without and we'll see more of that in this final section. The danger of pop theology, the supreme example of unjust suffering. And thirdly, the blessing of future glory, verses 10 to 17. Oh, it's a difficult book. It's been a heavy book. But from this moment in, from verses 10 to 17, the last 11 verses of the book... It is happily ever after for Job. Let me read them again. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who'd known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys. 
And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Kezia, and the third Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died, old and full of years. See, after the darkness of suffering, the light of God's blessing and presence shines brightly on Job. Sounds wonderful. But I love the words of Mike Reeves here. He says this, Many people groan at this point because they feel that after all the magnificent pathos of the rest of the book, dealing so subtly with this monumental and complex theme of suffering, here is an ending that is just, well, just too Hollywood, too fairy tale and unrealistic. They feel it's an ending that will help the children go to bed and sleep at night, but, but not an ending that will give real comfort to mature adults. That's good, that, isn't it? But you see, that is to misunderstand what's going on here, if we take that view. Here in the book of Job, we are given a magnificent understanding of the movement of the entire history of mankind. That's a big statement. See, let me, without turning it back, let me take you back to chapter 1 of the book of Job. In Job chapter 1, we had a man, Job, living in the land of Uz. Uz means a fertile place, a wooded or shaded place, a bit like a garden. And this garden, this garden place, Uz, was situated in the east, we're told. The point is, we have a man living a great life in a garden place in the east. Where does it sound like? It sounds very much like Genesis chapter 2 where we read the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put a man that he had formed. And as in Eden, into this idyllic scene slides Satan. And just like Genesis, in the book of Job, Satan soon sees to it that Job loses it all, it's paradise lost. Now there are of course many differences between the book of Job and the book of Genesis. Genesis is concerned with sin and death coming into the world. Job is concerned with suffering. But there are enough parallels for us to see that Job's experience is an echo of the fall of humanity into sin and death. And that's why at the end, in Job chapter 42, we see that Job's whole story is a picture of the whole of humanity. Through the innocent life of a man innocently suffering... Through the sacrifice offered, we see Satan defeated and Job restored. And so these last verses are not just happily ever after. This isn't Hollywood at all. This isn't even just Eden restored, but this is resurrection to a new life in a better place. The new heavens and the new earth, better than the first creation even. Now you might be thinking at this point, well that's a bit fanciful, that bit of theology, Paul. How are we going to read that into all? Are we meant to read that into all of that? Is that really what the end of the book of Job is about? Well if you're not convinced, or even if you are, come with me to James chapter 5, page 1216. Page 1216, James chapter 5. And here we'll see how the Bible interprets the Bible, how the New Testament tells us how to read the book of Job and especially the last bit of the book of Job. 
James chapter 5, verse 7. Now you see, look what James is writing about. Verse 7, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. That's what this section is about. He's telling us to be patient until the Lord returns. And then look down to verse 11 of James 5. As you know, we consider blessed those who've persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. See the point? James says in verse 7, be patient, Christian, because of what the Lord is going to do when he finally comes. And here's an example of your patience, Job. And you see what he got at the end? Job chapter 42 is meant to be a picture for us of what will happen when the Lord comes to take us to be with him forever. And we see that marvellously as we turn back to chapter 42 of Job. It is a picture of what the Lord has for us in the new heavens and the new earth. And what we see in Job is blessing beyond our wildest dreams. In Job chapter 42 and verse 10, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Twice as much, that's really important. And then we see it spelt out in verse 12, twice as much. You see, in chapter 1, Job had 7,000 sheep. Here in verse 12, he has 14,000 In chapter 1, Job had 300 camels. Here in verse 12, he has 600. In chapter 1, Job had 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys. Here in chapter 12, he's given 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys. And then look down to verse 16. Job even gets a double lifespan. In Psalm 90, we're told the length of a man's days are 70 years. And how long does Job live? 140. He gets double, a double portion, twice as much. It all begins with a huge banquet in verse 11. A banquet where, in verse 11, Job receives comfort and consolation. Oh, the Lord hasn't ignored what's happened through the course of all this suffering. He's comforting him, consoling him. Oh, it's been terrible what you've been through, but I I care for you so much. And then in verses 13 and 14, Job is given seven sons and three daughters. He previously had seven sons and three daughters. Uh, Of course, these sons and daughters don't in any way replace the ones who've died. That would be crass to think in those terms. But we do see here Job's family restored. That's the point, I think. It's all a picture of the new creation. See, in chapter 1, Job had it good. He had everything. Job uh, had, uh, well, a life that couldn't get any better, could it? But then we see it does. Oh, he's had to go through all this suffering. But through it all, the Lord gives us something better, a double portion, something twice as good as in Eden, do you see? Do you sometimes think that life is good? I only thought that at the beginning of the weekend. I thought, I really enjoy my lot. I don't think it was just because I was reading this. I thought life is good, especially in Fullwood. That's a place of peace and prosperity. I've got friends and family around me, enjoying health and wealth. It's fantastic. Do you ever think like that? Well, if you do, that's fine, that's great, but have you got the point yet? It's not a patch on the new heavens and the new earth where there'll be no more suffering and pain or death or mourning. And we see how good it is when we look at Job and especially when we look at his daughter's Oh, the daughters. Look at verse 13. 
He also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he called Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah? Jemima. That would have been odd, wouldn't it? <laughs> Jemima. The second, Kezia, and the third, Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. Oh, the daughters. These three daughters were a dad's dream. They were beautiful. They, they were drop-dead gorgeous, which probably isn't the right phrase to use in the context of Job, but anyway, you get the point. They were stunning. But the key to understanding how important they were is to look at their names. That's really the important point. Verse 14, Job named his first daughter Jemima. Jemima means sunshine. See, after all the darkness of suffering, Job now had a new sunshine in his life. You can just hear him singing, you are my sunshine. You see, he got up every morning, he looked at her. But of course it's a picture of the new day that had broken into his life. The promise of the light shining in the darkness. Of the morning star rising as Peter describes it. Well, describes him, the Lord Jesus. And verse 14, Job called his second daughter Kezia. Somebody in the congregation has has a daughter called Kezia. It's the Hebrew name for an aromatic plant, cassia, or like cinnamon. It's a lovely smell. Such a change from chapter 19, where do you remember? You won't forget chapter 19, will you? Where Job, Job said, My breath is offensive to my wife. Do you remember that? <laughs> now he's, everything smells lovely now. But it's the name he gave his third daughter in verse 14 that I love the most. He called her Karen Hapuk. We'll call her Karen, shall we? Karen Hapuk. It roughly means little makeup box. <laughs> little makeup box. And do you know why he did that? Because if you remember back to chapter 16, Job had said, My face is red with weeping, deep shadows ring my eyes. But no longer. His little makeup box has done the trick. Yeah, the beauty of his daughter covered over his sorrows. Do you get the picture? What Job was given, this double portion, was enough to wipe away all the tears, to cancel out all the suffering, to deal with all the pain. And that's what's to come in the new heavens and the new earth. We can look forward to a future that far outstrips the world. Krista Rash puts it like this. The blessings of the new heavens and the new earth will be rock-solid real. We look forward to beauty that makes the most beautiful woman in the world seem dull. We look forward to fruitfulness that will make the most abundant family in the world seem barren. We look forward to prosperity that will make Bill Gates seem poor. We look forward to celebrations that will make the best party in the world seem like a quiet glass of apple juice. And it will be so good because we'll be in the presence of the Lord. That's the big picture into which the existence of suffering fits. That's what the Lord gives us through innocent suffering. Through the innocent suffering of his son. It is greater than he could ever have given us were there no suffering. Let me leave you with some words from J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings fame where of course he was dealing with the existence of uh, and destruction of evil in that great trilogy if you've seen the film there's uh, a scene at the end of 
the two towers where Sam speaks to Frodo as Frodo is about to buckle under the weight of all the evil and suffering that he's endured. And Sam says this, it's like the great stories, Mr Frodo, the ones that really mattered, like the stories in the Bible. Well, he didn't say that bit, but he probably should have. It's like the great stories, Mr Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something even if you were too small to understand why. See, that's the story of the Bible that the book of Job tells us. Darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine the clearer. The Lord will bring more blessing than ever he could have had we not gone through that suffering, had his son not gone through that suffering. He will give us a double portion. And not least of all, because we will see how great he is. And we could never have seen that had the world never suffered. Of course, there only remains one tragedy. There may be someone here who will not enjoy that new day. If that's you, if you've not yet come to that point where you're sure that you're going to be with the Lord Jesus in the new creation. Well, you might like to look at verse, 42, uh, verse 8 of chapter 42 and just change it a bit. Well, I think we could read it this way. Go to my servant Jesus. My servant Jesus will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. And in just a moment when we take bread and wine, it might be that there's some here who have not yet ever gone to God's servant Jesus. That would be a good time to do it, wouldn't it? To turn to him, to acknowledge that you are sinful and to say, will you take away my sin? I want to start with you. Well, let's have a moment of silence as we think about all that we've thought about. And then in just a moment, after we've reflected on this, Ed will continue to lead us through our service.